Hello, uh, perspective listeners and viewers. Uh, we are continuing our uh, series uh, with women of color around their identity and how that has been related to possibly their proximity to whiteness. And we are a few guests, uh, you know, that we would, uh, that we actually decided we want to have guests come onto the show to talk about this issue because you see myself and Lisette all the time, which wave Lisette to the viewers. Um, so you always hear from us, but we really want this series um, to really focus on hearing from other women of color, um, as I just stated. And so uh, here today we have guests, Sylvia, who will be chatting with us uh, for the next few videos and really just, you know, trying to think where we want to get this conversation started. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit about your upbringing, Sylvia. Uh, I mean, because I personally, I don't know if you are a Chicago native. I know I'm not a Chicago native, but um, I would love to, you know, maybe that's a way we can open up and then we just see where the conversation takes us. And Lisette, feel free, hop in here if you have any, if you think you have like another, another good question, you think maybe besides that, that we can get this kicked off. No, I think um, I think that's all good. I think I'll just quickly uh, recap to those that might be watching this for the first time and are wondering what it, what series are y'all talking about. <laughs> um, and you know, Martina mentioned we've been having conversations uh, around uh, with other women around proximity to whiteness, and and that came because if you've been watching our channel or have seen some of our other videos, uh, we've been having a lot of conversations around white supremacy uh, and and what that kind of how that kind of embodies a lot of what's around us and has uh, dictated a lot of how society has uh, run, uh, particularly in this country. Uh, but, you know, really we wanted to give a voice as Martina mentioned, and I think it'd be great to just kind of hear from you, Sylvia, just a little bit about yourself uh, and, you know, and just talk a little bit about what, you know, where, where you're from, like, you know, like that, that question that a lot of us get, um, particularly as, uh, as Latinas or Latinos, you know, we get that question, like, where are you from? Uh, and that can mean so many different things to a lot of different people, but I'd love to hear it from you, Sylvia. And I, as you all have been watching, you know, this is a conversation and, you know, we'll definitely, you know, ask questions and, and follow up with, with, with each other and, uh, and do that. But Sylvia, I'll kind of turn it over to you uh, to just tell us about yourself and, you know, some of your background, and then we can uh, continue the conversation. Sure. So Sylvia Puente, and in my current role, I'm president and CEO of the Latino Policy Forum. And it's an organization that when I first stepped into my role 13 years ago now, there were three people. And now uh, we're about 18. But we've grown to, I think, really be a leading policy organization that focuses on issues of Latino equity in the areas of immigration and housing um, and education. And we also run a leadership program, which is how I met Lisette, which is sort of the other side of the organization where we focus on the data to pursue equity for the Latino community. But with the Leadership Academy, it's really how do we foster the relationships, particularly between Black and Latino communities to build and strengthen our city, to build trust, um, and to really have this be a community that we all want to live in and thrive. So I'm privileged uh, to be to lead the organization and have been in this role for quite some time now. 
but when you asked me, and I thought, as you were saying, Lizeth, where do you come from? Hmm. You know, why do I do this work is a lot because I got asked that question a lot when I was growing up. Um, my parents somehow uh, newly married living uh, had to move because some people may or may not remember that there was a whole Mexican community that got displaced when the University of Illinois at Chicago got built. And that area, uh, which is now where the university campus is, was initially Italian or previously Italian and then more Mexicans moving in, but all got displaced. And that was one of the first ways of gentrification that I think that impacted our communities. And my parents, newly married, still in their early 20s, somehow wound up buying a brand new house in the suburbs. And decades later, when I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago, I took a housing class and we talked about the growing metropolis and the growth of suburbs. And I don't remember the statistic, but it was something like only one or 2% of all brand new houses that were built in the 50s and 60s boom of suburban growth were bought by Blacks or Latinas. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because it wasn't a brand new subdivision. It was a brand new house in an older community. But I remember thinking my parents really were a statistical anomaly. And I think that's actually defined a lot of who I am in my career and some of uh, the accomplishments that I've had of being one of the few and not one of the many. Uh, So at that point in time, we were um, a Mexican family uh, in a brand new house in the suburbs. And although we were Mexican, uh, the question always came up, where do you come from? Mm. And I would say Chicago, but where do you really come from? Mm. Chicago, but where are your parents from? Mm. Texas, well, where are their parents from? And I would say, well, their parents lived in Texas pretty much their whole life too. Mm. So it still was, it definitely then was not common. And even today, not all common, that I can literally say that my, from what I know on my mother's side, it was my great grandfather that settled the town in Texas that my mother came from. So I'm fourth generation. And that also is not very common statistical anomaly in the Chicago region. Um, most people of Latino origin have much, they were born or their parents were born in Mexico or a country of Latin America. So I always had this divide of feeling like I didn't belong because I was always, I didn't belong. And even though I was fourth generation, quote unquote, American, my identity was always questioned and how could I be American and how could I look the way that I looked? But because literally we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Mm -hmm. So brief history lesson, the Mexican war of 18, between Mexico and the US of 1848, all of the land you know, one third of the U.S. territory was Mexico belonged to Mexico, so all the states of Texas, of Texas and Colorado and Arizona and California, and I forget what other state I'm forgetting. That that, that was all Mexican territory. So when people ask me what part of Mexico I come from, I say Texas, right? And it's just the reminder of that that we have that history, which is much more common obviously in the Southwest than here. 
So when you ask me, where do I come from? And that sense of identity, I think because I got asked that question so much when I was a young person, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, even into high school, I had to figure out who I was. And always had that sense of, well, people are asking me that question, do I belong here? But I also knew because I didn't have deep familiar roots in Mexico, that I didn't really belong in Mexico either. And when we would, my family would travel to Mexico, we weren't Mexican, we didn't speak Spanish. You know, we weren't from that side, we didn't have close relatives. I only had one tia, one aunt who was actually raised here, who married a man from Mexico who went to go live in Mexico. So I didn't have family, you know, didn't have a hometown, right? Because it was land that was Mexico, that then was Texas. Now that's where my roots are, my raíces are. And so I think because I got asked that question so frequently, like, well, then who am I? <laughs> you know, am I Mexican? Am I American? Am I neither? Am I both? And, and really, I think up until... I think I figured this out once in my early 30s. It took me a long time to really feel that I straddled and had that ambiguity and had that uh, ambiguity and, and you know, I say like opposite sides of a magnet, right? They're attracted to each other, but they don't really belong together, right? In terms of being both Mexican and American and never really feeling like I was Mexican because my family was Texan which is very different than Mexican. (laughs) But then being American and having, always having that questioned and challenged. So then I had to go learn who I was. And so that led me to read a lot of literature on Chicanos and Chicano rights and seminal book, if you haven't read it to understand this, Occupied America by Rodolfo Acuna, which I read in college, just really lays out, you know, how this, appropriation of land happened um, between um, from Mexico to the United States. Um, And that really, I felt like I always had to defend who I was. And I think because I had to always defend who I was and let people know who I was, you know, many years later, I'm now in this role where Latino Policy Forum, I would say one of the things that people can say about us is that we are certainly advocates and defend the Latino community. So that's a little bit of that story. Thank you for that. I am amazed at your story because it, it's such, uh, like you mentioned, it's not one that I hear often, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when you think about um, those that do, that have been in the United States generationally because of you know the Mexican-American War. Uh, it's not, I don't know a lot of people that kind of can pinpoint their history to that and, and have that. So it's just been uh, fascinating to hear from you and, and to kind of have that sense of like, man, like the border did cross you and your family and a lot of families there uh, and sort of that that added layer of identity, right? Because, you know, I think it's that like, no, but I, I am you are American and you are Mexican because you did, you know, the roots were there uh, from the beginnings. It's just been fascinating, but. Right. And then how do you reconcile that? And, you know, up until my parents' generation, they went to segregated schools. They only spoke Spanish um, in their household and most of their schools, but they were also fully bilingual. 
So then because they didn't want me and my brothers and sisters to have the same issues that they had, they did not teach us Spanish. They spoke to us in English. And so I really, my Spanish is still not great, but I really didn't start to learn Spanish until high school, you know, when I took Spanish in high school, right? So, so that's one piece of just like, how do you reclaim identity language, the extent that language is, is involved. And then really, when, when I think about it, um, both the other part of the story I want to tell is that both of my parents came from farm worker families, right? And when I think about that now, that's one thing, as I've thought about the Leadership Academy that the Latino Policy Forum runs and bringing together Black and Latino communities, that's a commonality that we don't often talk about and how many of our people, both of our communities really work the land mm -hmm. and work the land for low wages to a large extent exploited by the owners of that land. In my family's case, they would go from Texas and they would go to Oklahoma and pick cotton, come to Illinois and Michigan and pick blueberries and strawberries and peaches, and then go back to Texas. And one year, uh, my mother's the youngest of 11, my father's the youngest of seven or eight, they, their families each decided, oh, this is the 50s, mid, early to mid 50s in Chicago. We can make a lot more money if we all take factory jobs in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Continuing this arduous, laborious, you know, obviously hard labor. And each of my parents were the youngest in their family. And they both came to start high school, no, their second year of high school in Chicago. Their siblings were all older and already working. And I often think about that because they had the opportunity to go to high school and none of their other siblings did. Ooh, I get a little emotional, I guess, talking about it. The fact that they, they were able to finish high school laid the foundation for me to go to college. And I think about that. My mother's youngest of 11, my father's youngest of eight. I have at least a hundred first cousins in all those generations. I was the first one to finish college, to go to and finish college. Think about that. Like, what is what is the barrier that's broken? What is the weight that's being lifted? What is the responsibility that's connected to that? So obviously that's really deep in my soul and deep in my psyche. And then the other example that I had that I think really um, speaks to a lot of who I am and why I do in the world. And maybe it was because both of my parents were perfectly bilingual, even though they weren't formally educated in Spanish. When they got to the suburban community that we lived in, it was about maybe 20% Latino, was about maybe 40% Black at that time, and 40%, that's not going to add up, but it was a very diverse community. Mm -hmm. There were Blacks, there were Whites, and there were a few Mexicans. And that was my world growing up. I lived in this very diverse world. Um, but because they were who, th who they were, um, one of the stories I tell is that uh, it was when Head Start was just starting. And they were starting the program in Head Start, which they knew would enable academic success for, for young children. Um, my father organized a group of parents and they went to go talk to the school superintendent because they said, why don't you have a bilingual Spanish speaking teacher? Mm -hmm. So many of these kids in the classroom speak Spanish. And they said, well, 
we don't have the resources for it. So my father organized and they raised the money to hire the part-time teacher to work in Head Start in Spanish. Full circle, 50 years later, because Head Start has now been around for 50 years later, has now been around for 50 years, one of the core issues of the Latino policy forum is working on early education and still making sure that Latino children have equitable access to that early education because that early education really impacts their whole academic trajectory and enables their academic success. So my parents, um, really they had no training, but they were activists. They started the first Spanish language mass at the church. They organized the first Fiesta de Guadalupe at the church, at the local Catholic church. They were able to rally people around them to really try to create community change and community improvement. So I can't say that, um, so literally it's just so interesting when I reflect and look back, having that experience. I mean, I was an activist all through high school. I was an activist all through college and literally this is still what I do and I'm blessed to earn a living doing the work I do. Still trying to create equity for the Latino community. Oh, Sylvia, you, uh, when you got teary eyed, I, it's, uh, it just, it's just, it really touched me because it just made me think about uh, your story and uh, my story and Lisette's story and how, you know, how much sacrifice that our families have gone through, even if we realize it or not, to help us be the first ones to do whatever, whether it's the first ones to go to college, first ones to go to grad school, first ones to maybe have, you know, a really nice job, you know, however that's defined. And it just really took a hold on me and it just uh, to learn that, yeah, just like to learn that about you and to have that similarity and to hear you tell your stories, especially I think between the similarities around the uh, land workers and farm workers between the between the Latino community and, and the Black community. And you know, it's now I feel like we hear a little bit more about some of those similarities, but still not as much. It's often not a story that is told. Um, it's often one that's like, you know, sometimes they try to pit the, you know, pit the two of us against each other. And, but there are so many uh, similarities there. And so I thank you for bringing, bringing that up. You know, and the other part that's often not told, because when we look at the Latino experience in the U.S., I mean, it's obviously very diverse. We have a very diverse Latino community. And the predominant paradigm are Mexican immigrants who came for a better life and were willing to sacrifice to, to do that, right? But what's not often understood is my parents went to segregated schools. They went to the Mexican school, not to the white school. They had to walk to the other side of town to go to the Mexican schools. <clears throat> they heard the stories of lynching mm. and how people were lynched in their, in their community by the Texas Rangers. Mm. <clears throat> you know, the prejudice and, you know, the aftermath, <clears throat> excuse me, of what we're still dealing with. That racial prejudice, that white supremacy, if you will, you know, that thinking that you can just appropriate people's lives and take them is endemic in the South for both the Mexican and the Black community. Yes. To your point, Martina, I don't think it's widely known, mm -hmm. um, but you know, some of our oldest Latino civil rights organizations uh, were founded 
<clears throat> I forget the name of the one right now, but it was founded when World War II veterans came home having their Purple Hearts and Medals of Honor and they couldn't be buried in the quote unquote white cemetery. Right. So that, you know, I carry that, right? I mean, people don't always know that, but but I, I still feel to a large extent, you know, we're all working on healing ourselves. And I think these days we have more understanding, or at least we're having more open conversation and vocabulary about the trauma that as people of color we've all experienced. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize that it was trauma. And so literally, I think just in the past couple of years, when it's yeah. being talked about more, right, when I, when I carry, you know, when I carry that or why the tears come up, right, because it's not just my pain and sacrifice, to your point, it's the pain and sacrifice of everyone that had to work for me to get here today, yeah. right. So we don't even know that, right. But what I love and sharing something else about myself and thinking about this other question that I'm sure we'll come to and how I've navigated proximity to whiteness, I always knew that I was a Chicana. And my first identity was not even Latina, which is usually what I say now, mm -hmm. but it was Chicana. And what Chicana means is that I'm Mexican of origin, but from this side of the border. Mm -hmm. But to use the term Chicana, you had to have political awareness and political consciousness because it wasn't an everyday term that people really understood very well, right? It had its political connotations to it, the political uh, quest for equity and for acceptance and rights and being represented on this side of the border. So my first identity as I began, and all the reading I did when I was early on was about Chicano, the Chicano movement, mm -hmm. which really was a parallel movement to what we saw in the civil rights struggle for the black community much smaller, much less well-known, but we had our activists, we had our heroes, um, you know, we, we had our shootouts uh, with respect to the whole Chicano movement that was largely in, in the Southwest. So my Chicano identity eventually became a Latino identity, right? Which is still my preferred term mm -hmm. in terms of saying Latino identity. I'm very annoyed and I understand younger people may use the term but I'm very annoyed by the term Latinx. I'm very annoyed by the institutions that are imposing that term without asking. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had this conversation with my daughter who is a millennial. And it's like, I will call you whatever you want to call because, be called because the right of self-determination is for everybody to choose what and how and how and why they call themselves. Right. And if you prefer to be called Latinx, I will respect that, but then you have to risk Conversely, you have to respect my request not to be called that, right? Mm -hmm. So it re really is, and it, it makes it harder to categorize people when you do that, I understand. Um, but, you know, I, I really think that that's important. But the part that I thought about that I, I wanted to share, having this duality of identity and not being Mexican, because I really didn't have roots in Mexico, but also constantly being questioned about, am I American and do I belong? and how you internalize that feeling of, do you belong or do you not belong? And how do you resolve that? It wasn't until my early thirties. So I had it all, you know, and, and literally I felt it as a tension. And literally I felt it as I was walking on this tight rope. Which way am I leaning today? Am I leaning to be today to be more a white girl? Am I leaning today to be more a Chicana girl? How do I walk this fine line? And literally feeling this tension inside of me and 
almost every day feeling like I was walking that tightrope and what character was I going to put out? How was I going to show up in terms of who I was talking to or how I was presenting myself? Um, it wasn't until my early 30s where I was fortunate and privileged that I got invited on a trip by the Mexican government to go to Mexico to look at and understand some of the dynamics of Mex some Mexican communities and the dynamics of where many immigrants to the United States were coming from. So we visited some of those communities where, um, you know, people from Durango, people from Michoacan, people from the state of Mexico were coming to the U.S. And we got to talk to community leaders. We got that went to go to a lot of neighborhoods. We were sort of wined and dined by the Mexican government and being in some of, you know, the equivalent of the Secretary of State building for this beautiful mm -hmm. dinner. And the trip was with about maybe 20 or 30 other quote, US Mexican leaders that from all over the country. So there were people there from Washington DC and, and Texas and California and any of your um, listeners, the great Raul Isaguirre, who was the founder of the, then, then called the National Council of La Raza, the largest Latino civil rights organization in the nation. Their name is now Unidos US. I was legit, he was on that trip with me. And something shifted for me on that trip where I just said, you know what? No one can impose identity on me. No one can impose their version of what they think I am on me. My identity is what I choose and what I claim, right? And so it was this shift and awareness and consciousness is I don't have to respond to what others are calling me. I am not what others are calling me unless I believe it. I am both Mexican and American, and this is what it looks like, right? That was my, I don't know what, what I even want to call it, but my, my shift, right? Because it was like, I am both, you know, I was claiming both because up to that point, I realized I had said I'm neither. I don't think I'm Mexican. I don't think that I'm American. And like I said, the opposite is in the magnet. I wasn't claiming, and I didn't feel comfortable being either one, mm -hmm. Mexican or American. That trip to when I got to see and the people I heard from and talked and just going back to the roots there, if you will, even though I had been to Mexico numerous times with my family and on other trips, that trip shifted, okay, I'm, I'm going from being neither and being, not being comfortable being either Mexican or American to I am now claiming both and I am fully comfortable being both Mexican and American, right? And it is the integration of those two in me now. And this is what it looks like. My Spanish is not perfect. <laughs> I wasn't born in Mexico. My parents weren't born in Mexico. I grew up in the suburbs at a time when there were very, very few Latinos in the suburbs, right? All of that duality and all of that complexity, I am now fully both. Yeah, um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> you go, I just, yeah. Just. No, I think one of the, the things that really struck a chord with me when you were talking, Sylvia, was when you were saying that that tension that you're walking on that tightrope, like, am I going to be more white? Am I going to be more, more Mexican today? And I think that's something that 
uh, I still kind of sometimes struggle with in whatever, whether it's me going into certain meetings or certain things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have to be someone different at that meeting? Do I have to sort of lean more towards what society accepts, right? Like, do I have to speak a little different? Do I have to just walk a little different? Um, and do things and I think that's something that just struck the chords that there's so many I think out there who who vacillate between both worlds you know whether you're black or brown you you always are sort of like how who is going to see me today like and how are they going to see me today and who do I want to reflect today and it's uh it's such a a mental exhaustion sometimes I think where you're you know I, I there's days where I'm just like I can't just be anybody but just me right now and I like forget everybody and I'm, I'm just gonna watch the tv and just not care about what's going on because I've been I've done the you know especially when you know a lot of the the work that that we do is in the community and you're someone in the community but then you're in these boardrooms or in these meetings and you have to be something completely different but you're much more comfortable being over here and it's so exhausting so when you talked about that I think it's it's something that Martina and I have talked about how we have to always, uh, uh, you know, code switch is sort of like when you're depending how you're speaking and, and all these things, but it's more than just how you speak, it's how you walk, how you sort of carry yourself sometimes. And, and sometimes you do it unconsciously. I think sometimes I make myself smaller in certain spaces, and you're, and then I, I realize I'm like, why do I feel so you know, wrapped in? And I'm like, why am I? I'm the one doing this, nobody's doing it to me, but because I've been so uh condition or socialized to feel less than that sometimes I just like find myself sort of like oh I, I need to just I can stand up a little straighter like I can do this like I belong here like nobody you know nobody can dictate that like I've made it here uh, exactly. from that's part of it Liz, that is claiming your own power your own authority your own sense of of uh agency in terms of who you are right that the shift for me was no one else was, I was ever gonna let anyone impose who they thought I was on me, right? They could think whatever they wanted me, but I didn't have to honor that. I didn't have to acknowledge it. I didn't have to take it in. You know, I, I just kept it at bay. And so it was my shifting and turning to say, this is who I am, right? And once I was able to say, this is who I am, and I was comfortable walking in my own skin that way, then how you treat yourself is how people treat you. And that was my lesson learned there, right? For the most part, how you treat yourself is how people treat you, right? And so just having that confidence in terms of who I am, it didn't matter what people asked me or if they said, you know, who are you and where do you come from anymore, right? I just, yeah, just, it just wasn't even an, it, you know, I was able to release it as, as, an, as, an, as an issue. But, you know, thinking about this question of proximity to whiteness, I, I'm, don't usually know what I'm thinking until I say it out loud. So I haven't had a lot of time to process or to think much about that. And it's a relatively new term, right? So my generation, there was no Latino studies. Uh, there was no critical race theory. There was no vocabulary that I think, you know, your generation and, you know, I'm learning from the youth on the streets and from my daughter. And so the first time she said that word to me, that term to me, I'm like, wow, you know, how much do we 
I don't even know what it is. How much do we aspire to, or do we give ourselves recognition or credibility by our proximity to whiteness? And I started having this little bit of a conversation with myself. I was always a smart kid, right? So I think, you know, two things that, that I'll say that um, have really shaped me, or maybe, maybe three things. Uh, what I give credit to my mother for is that my mother and I graduated from college the same year. Wow. So seeing her go through five kids, a divorce, her sense of determination, took her 10 years starting and stopping at the local community college and then eventually transferring to four-year institution, her ganas, her determination. She was bound and determined and had that fire inside her that she wanted that higher education. She's the only one of her 11 siblings to finish high school, the only one that's finished through college. So seeing, seeing that. My father, um, the one of the gifts that I know that I got from him is he could talk to anyone about anything. He had the gift of voice and he was pretty self-made man, very smart and very articulate. So I say, I got my gift of voice from him, my gift of being able to speak. And those who know me know I do, you know, some public speaking, right? But that, that confidence and that knowing and being able to get up in front of a room and talk to people the way he went to go talk to the superintendent and took a whole group of parents with him when he didn't know what he was doing. He just knew it was the right thing to do, right? right? So having, I think, sort of those two uh, key role models and, and those two key examples. And then the third thing is that I knew that I was smart. I don't know how I knew I was smart, but I, I was smart. And, you know, unlike I think some of times what our schools do to, to young people and to many of our students, maybe because I went to a small Catholic school, so I was treated as a person and, you know, the classrooms were relatively small, but I got constant reinforcement that I was smart from my teachers, from fellow students. I remember, <laughs> this is so funny, it was I was well into my 40s and I ran it. Some man approached me at an event and I had gone from first to eighth grade with him. And he said, and what, you know, I, I remembered who he was. He said, Solia, yeah, you and I were always competing. Like competing. <laughs> Never competed with you. It was always between you and me in terms of who was the smartest kid in the classroom. I said, really? Like he had this awareness. I was clueless, right? You see, I remember the one time there was a spelling bee, and I said, yeah, this is the time I'm going to beat her. But no, Sylvia, you won. <laughs> and I had no clue, right? That, that that was, but I knew I was the smartest kid in the class. I did know that, mm -hmm. right? And, and I got that reinforcement from teachers and other classmates, and it was just so interesting to hear this outside perspective of, you know, this, yeah, this man now, and we're both in our 40s, telling me the story from when we were in seventh or eighth grade or whatever in grade school. Um, so part, you know, like those three, the, those three things, right? Um, the example of perseverance from my mother, the example, and, and my mother always took, also took me to my first picket line and supported the United Farm Workers. So that activism was also very much a part of my youth and being smart. And I've been trying to unpack and puzzle this concept and idea of proximity to whiteness. How is that related to my being smart or not smart? Was I knew I was a smart kid, but was I a smart kid because that's what you were supposed to do to aspire to and be successful, right? 
and how is that the same or different from aspiring to whiteness? And there are some challenging things in aspiring to whiteness, but then also my aspiring to whiteness enabled me to go to college, enabled me to go to Harvard, enabled me to go to go live in Springfield for three years when there were no Latinos in Springfield, enabled me to have the success that I that that, that I have, right? So there are some good things to that, mm-hmm. but I'll close with this. But I also now realize and just am now beginning to understand and unpack that that idea of aspiring to whiteness also kept me for many, many years in this mode of, I've got to be smart. I've always got to know what I'm saying and talking about. Um, I've always got to speak my voice, but I'm not going to let people know who I am. So for many, many years, I showed up in this, my professional mode. And I would always say, yeah, a lot of people know me, but very few people really know me. Because that thing about needing to keep up that professional veneer and that professionalism in sitting in those boardrooms, sitting in those spaces, I always spoke analytically, the data made my case but I didn't let those people know who I was. And so how much did it harm me to what you were saying earlier, Martina, and not being able to show up with my full authentic self, right? I am still unpacking that, even at this age. I just had a birthday, I'm over 60, right? I am still unpacking it at this age and stage and and making a conscious shift to, as Brene Brown would say, to be more vulnerable in public making a conscious shift to let people know what I'm really thinking and feeling, but it's still a process of releasing all those years and layers when I didn't allow myself to, because I thought that's what it meant to be professional and be the only Latina in all of these rooms and in all these spaces that I was in. Oh, Sylvia, you just touched touched on so much, so much that I just think that we've talked about, Alyssa and I, myself, and you know, you mentioned that you were smart. And that was my thing too. I was, uh, you know, I graduated high school and college and did fairly well. And growing up in Mississippi, where I did, and my family uh, doing everything they could to, you know, to, to keep food on the table and a roof over our head, I knew by being smart, like that was my way out. Like I was going to become something, whatever that meant, like when I was 16, 17 years old, but by being smart and like, I always have been super, super studious. And even, even to this day, I just have always been like, you know, being smart was my ticket out. And to hear you talk about, you know, kind of uh, making that connection with that in terms of that proximity to whiteness, again, something that Alyssa and I've talked about is that, it's not always seen as a bad thing because having that proximity to whiteness has allowed us, you know, to, you know, to go to great schools and get the great jobs and maybe meet and meet certain people uh, because we all kind of operate within this system. You know, we can call it white supremacy, but it, you know, it hasn't always looked bad because I mean, look at us now. And to hear you talk about how you're still on this, on this discovery, um, I know for myself, I really have kind of started to try and understand more of myself and who I am since I, since I turned 30. So it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was great to hear you say that 
that that was kind of a light bulb moment for you too, when you when you got into your thirties, how you know you just started to think about things differently and how you were like you know I'm both Mexican and I'm both American, um, and that you know and those are things that I'm still processing, um, and but you know like you said I think this is just going to be a lifelong process. It's not something that is going to yeah. stop. Uh, it, it's going to continue, but it's definitely since I've since I've gotten into my thirties, trying to understand more of who I am and and where I came from. Um, and again, that will just something that will stay with me, and you know how I continue to identify myself. Because even you know we talked about the code switching, even now you know, and Lisette, I think you mentioned it too. Still, you know, we might go into those meetings, and well, we got to talk to this. CEO, but you know, that's not exactly where we want to be. You know, we want to be with, you know, in the community and, and doing this and talking and talking with our people and trying to understand and help each other. But so it, it, it is this weird um, paradigm in a way that we're trying to operate in between, you know, because we have been fortunate to be able to go to school and, you know, have the jobs that we do have. And you're trying to make those connections. Um, and yeah, I just I just wanted to say that before you know we kind of wrap up the session. But Lisette, I'll turn it to you to say. Yeah, no, I think when you start talking about being the, the smart one, you know, the smart is the one thing that that you knew you had, you know. And Martina mentioned like that was my thing too. Like I'm smart. Like I I I, I love to read. I I have the great I have the great uh you know grades and teachers are always praising me like or, or, you know my parents would whenever they could go to like the, to pick up a report card like oh she's doing great like there was this whole pride and, and you just kind of like I think I just grabbed onto that it was like this is it like this is like but then you you now looking back is like I was seeking that sort of praise from that that society like that thing and, and it was always that thing of like she's so articulate and you know it, when I was younger it didn't mean anything to me because I was like oh it's a great thing I like I'm but now looking back I'm like you know they th that was kind of demeaning like to, to kind of <laughs> say that and, and, and to say it to my parents and to like for them to not understand what it really meant um and, to, and now to explain it to them and for, you know and to bring them into this journey because like they're like why do you get so mad and I'm like because you need to understand why this means so much to me or why it makes me so mad. I need to teach you because it wasn't something that you all were aware of. You came here for a better life for us and you, we were able to find our paths. You know, I'm the youngest of three and, you know, the, each one has taken a different path in this world, but it, it really kind of just hit me when you were talking about like, it comes to a point, you know, like I'm in my mid thirties and I was in the early thirties when it really started kind of you know, thinking about like, what is that place? What does it mean? And and it wasn't really to the last two, three years where I started really thinking about that proximity to whiteness, white supremacy and how that all kind of fits in. So to hear that there's that, that sort of connection, I think from a lot of uh, people of color where education was just kind of that, like that's your key to go to make the world better. And that's the, the way out. Uh, but there's some prices that you pay along the way uh, that that you look back. I had a nickel for every time someone told me I was articulate. By the time I was 25, <laughs> I would be a millionaire by now. Yeah. And it's only now to your point that I can see, yes, I understood that they were offering me a compliment, 
but it's only now that I can understand because they weren't expecting it. Yeah. So it was a compliment, but it was just like, oh, we don't expect this of you. But you're so smart. You're so articulate, right? Mm -hmm. That at the same time as a compliment, it was also sort of patronizing and, and condescending, right? Yeah. Because it's like they had to call it out that, oh, yes, you're so smart and you're so articulate, right? So just the duality of that. And and what I would just say, you know, and I've had this conversation with my daughter, to our point, proximity to whiteness isn't all bad, right? But it's not, but it's having the awareness of it and what it has done and shaped you so that you can understand that duality because every, and one of my beliefs is every gift also has a shadow side, right? Mm -hmm. So everything has a duality and it's not never all right, wrong, good or bad, but it's being able to step back and sort of look at it and say, well, here's what I gained from that idea of that that was my path to success, right? But here's a way that I know that it also hindered me and harmed me or kept me from, you know, really being able to be fully who I was, right? Because I didn't let people know me. You know, I pretended I didn't have feelings and emotions because I was never gonna let people know that they were upsetting me or that, you know, that they were pissing me off or insulting me, right? Because I wasn't gonna give them that power, right? So you, 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 find different kinds of coping me mechanisms around mm -hmm. that. But, and, and so I guess I'll just say it again, right? It's, it's in all of this, what we're talking about, right? It's understanding and recognizing that duality, right? That it has the good side and the shadow side of almost anything that we're talking about here. Thank you, uh, Sylvia. I think, uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap this uh, first part uh, up and, and and part of the conversation and you know there's a lot that my brain is processing <laughs> uh, of, of what you know Sylvia what you've shared and and um uh, and the next sort of uh, part of our conversation I think we'll definitely dig in to this question of identity and proximity to whiteness um, and and really have a conversation with you, Sylvia, because I know you said you're still kind of thinking through that. And I think just having this conversation, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you, Sylvia, for, for being with us. Thank you to our, our viewers and our listeners uh, for st sticking with us and, and listening in. If you have any comments or questions, please put them in the, uh, just in the comments below or find us on Instagram and, and, and send us a, a message there. Uh, we'd be happy to kind of answer anything or even any ideas for future topics that you'd like for us to explore. We definitely look forward to that. So keep an eye out. We will come back with Sylvia on, on part two of our, our conversation with her and as we explore sort of that identity and proximity to whiteness. So thank you everyone and we will see you next time. <laughs>